<clears throat> All right, well, we are picking up where we, well, kind of picking up where we left off last week. We're jumping over a little bit, but we'll recap it some. But we're going to be in chapter 20, picking up in chapter 20. Um, we will be in John's Gospel for two more weeks, this week and next week, and then we're going to spend, um, I don't know, a few weeks in the book of Acts, and we're going to jump over to some Paul's, Paul's letters. Remember, we're we're going through the story of God and, and these really large leaps and bounds. And, um, and so as we come to the end of Jesus' life on earth before his ascension, we'll be thinking about the early church um, that, that's, that so much of the New Testament is about. And so we'll be getting into that in the next few weeks. But first, well, we're going to take a look at the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to talk about um, what resurrection is and what it means and, and how it's important for our lives as Christians um, we'll be doing that this week and next week by using John's, uh, John's account of the, rebel, of the resurrection. Um, so we'll be in John chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 1 through 18, and that is in your handout, of course. And I'll have it up here on the screen. Um, first, let me ask a question. Uh, can you recall a time where you went from having a formal relationship with someone to becoming friends with them. Anybody recall a time like that? Well, I would actually say um, formal, uh, probably Bonnie, the way I worked with when she first got on there, was very, I didn't really know about that, so it was very, that's the only relationship you had was work. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then at some point, I actually recently started saying, hey, you know, I can pick up your son if he wants to go and do something. So I was taking her son to Columbus to do stuff and, you know, just yeah. um, helped her out with some stuff and so that. So what was the, how did you know that y'all had moved from just like work, you know, work associates to friends? How, what was like, how did you know that that had, that change had happened? Um, just probably the kind of way we kind of acted toward each other. Mm. Um, it went from being, you know, just about work stuff to, you know, maybe cracking a few jokes, <coughs> stuff at home, to her kind of talking to me about kind of the struggle she's having as a single mom. Gotcha. Just kind of some of the stuff that she's having to go through mm. at home. Mm -hmm. Um, some of the struggles she's having raising teenagers. Yeah. And just more personal with conversation. Gotcha. Yeah. So opening up and all. Anybody else got an example of moving from from friend or from like a formal relationship or associates to actually being friends? No, Gina was like the best friend you could ever have on the first. There you go. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, there's lots of relationships like that where you're friends from the beginning. Yeah, that's always good. Oh, uh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I had lots of friends because I've worked with a lot of people and I continue to be friends with them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Down through the years. Yeah. So like in a general way, how do you know, what's some like signs that you're moving from formal associates or, or relationship to friends? Any thoughts on that? Like, yeah. Hmm? 
conversations change. Yeah. It gets a little more personal. It gets more, uh, mm. whether it's kids, whether it's, in, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's fast, but sometimes it's slow. Yeah. That's good. I, uh, I think of one example, and this happened. There's some, obviously, you come into some situations, and, and the hope is to be friends right from the beginning. Um, maybe church, that's a lot of times how it is. We, even as a pastor coming in, like you come in, and yes, there's a formal relationship, but obviously, the hope is, is that we're, you know, more than just formal, formally, you know, associated with each other, right? The church is, you know, more than that. Um, and I think of, some of the signs that you can tell that a relationship's becoming less formal and more personal is like, so I remember being at Trevecca and um, like with your professors, when you first meet your professors in school or your teachers at, at, at school, a lot of times you're gonna, you're gonna have a particular title that you call them, right? So in school, you might say Mr. or Mrs. You might say Dr. Um, in, in, in college, you're going to say professor or doctor usually. And I remember um, the professor that we were, me and Mary Elizabeth both were in a lot of classes with Professor or Dr. Kathy Morey. Um, she, uh, when we first got to school, we were in, in, a, in a Dr. Morey class right at the beginning. And she, um, she kind of had this reputation of, of expecting to be called Dr. Morey. That's what she wanted to be called. She had earned her doctorate. She wanted to be called Dr. Morey, right? And I think she had run into this, like, this uh, sort of stigma or whatever where she was often called Miss Morey, even though she was a professor and she had a doctorate. And, you know, so a lot of her, a lot of the male professors were being called doctor and she was being called Miss or something like that. And so she wanted to be called doctor. She had earned that, right? She wanted to be called it. Um, but Dr. Morey would, she wouldn't tell you that whenever you first came in, you just kind of heard that. And so you'd call her Dr. Morey, but eventually, once you'd been in a few classes with her, and if you were having one-on-one -on -one conversations, she would slowly move. You can call me Kathy. It's okay. You know, she, she wanted you to call her Kathy. And so you could always tell with professors, especially in college or teachers, where you might have that transition from calling them Mr. or Mrs. to, to uh, or Dr. to, they're just their first name, right? And that's this, this sign that you have moved from a, from a, professional, you know, sort of interaction with them to becoming sort of friends. And so that, so I, I think of speci specifically what we call people. I think we're going to see that a little bit in this text tonight as a result of revelation or uh, in, in response to resurrection. We're going to see that a little bit in John's text. So um, <clears throat> to recap, <laughs> there you go, Ms. Ms. Polly took care of it. Um, so last lesson, we were in Holy Week. You'll remember last week. And um, you'll remember Jesus was condemned by Pilate. He had gone through the trial. Um, he was crucified. His clothes were taken and divided. And then after this, um, which we didn't get into this part last week, but we would have read it in the, in the Good Friday service, you'll remember. Jesus takes some time to speak with his, with his mother and his disciple. And then he... You know, he gives up his life spirit and he dies. And then Jesus' body is taken and um, he is buried. We're told he's buried nearby, actually. He's buried near where he was crucified. It was the Sabbath, and so they wanted to bury him fairly quickly. And so they buried him near where he was crucified, according to John. And so um, 
uh, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, these two men are secret disciples of Jesus, we're told, and they um, bury Jesus in secret. And so Jesus is buried near the site of his crucifixion, and specifically John wants us to know that it's in a garden. There's a garden nearby, and he was buried there in the garden in a tomb. And that's the setting for the text today. That's where we're going to find ourselves is in that garden where Jesus was buried. Um, Real quick, do you remember last week what day of the week um, in numbers or or day um, Jesus was killed, according to John? Anyone remember what day of the week? It was the sixth day. Sixth yeah, day. so starting from Sunday, mm-hmm. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Friday. So it's the sixth day. And so John tells us it's the sixth day. And you'll remember what I kind of pointed out last week is that um, for the Jewish readers who first read that, they would have instantly picked up on this being the preparation for the Sabbath, the sixth day of the week. Um, and so uh, it's Friday in our, in, our, um, in our calendars. For Jewish people, it's, again, the day before the Sabbath because their Sabbath is the last day of the week. You remember we talked a little bit about how that kind of is correlating between the creation narrative. John is big on the creation story. He begins his, 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 uh, his gospel account. In the beginning was the word, right? He wants us to think about Jesus as this cosmic Figure. Not just this Jewish Messiah, but this cosmic Christ, right? It's all of creation um, is, a, is a big part of what John wants to emphasize about Jesus. And so Jesus, the one true representation of God, the one true image of God, the one who has lived the image perfectly, um, is killed on the same day of the week that humanity was created. And so that's an, that's an important note. That's important to keep in mind as we get into this text right here. Um, And you'll hear that in the very first verse that we read, verse 1. So we'll we'll begin in verse 1, and we'll go through uh, verse 10 to begin with. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. Um, and we'll pick back up on that in a second. All right, so what is the first, what, what was Mary Magdalene's like initial reaction to the empty tomb? What does she report to the disciples? Somebody took him. Right? Yeah. So she thinks that somebody has taken Jesus' body, right? 
Um, so we're, what, what are we told the two disciples see in the tomb? All right, now keep that in mind. They, she's reporting that somebody has taken his body. What do the, what do the two disciples see? Right? So, it, so they see the linens. All right, there's a note that John makes about the linen that was on Jesus' head. What does he say about that? Separate. Mm -hmm. Rolled up. Right? All right, so what do you think? We're, what, what's kind of the hints that we're getting here, do you think? Now, she thinks that his body's been stolen, right? Grave robbers. That actually did happen. That was something that was kind of common in that day, that there would be grave robbers and they would steal bodies. Uh, so so what, what does it tell us that they see the linens, and specifically the one that's been on his head, is rolled up? It had to have been removed, like, carefully. Okay, well, carefully. Well, if the body could walk through walls, it could just mm -hmm. walk away from them the way they okay. wrapped around them. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It would be amazing evidence. Yeah. Because you couldn't get out and put them that perfect. Right. Now, if there were grave robbers, do you think that they would have bothered leaving the, or taking the clothes off, or especially rolling up the, the head cloth? So, the right, they would just would have snatched, and it would have probably there probably would have been more evidence that somebody was in a hurry. Right, anytime you steal something, you're not you're not being careful about it. Right. Um. So, um, I think that 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 we're trying to like getting these clues. Right. Obviously, again, you know, we talk about this all the time. We know the story. We know what's what's going on. But as you're reading this as a story, um, you begin to like pick up on some clues. Like, okay. You know, if you're doing some detective work, which is what we see the disciples do there, especially the, the disciple, the unnamed disciple says, you know, they're, they're looking at it. And we're told that the unnamed disciple believes. What does the disciple believe? We don't say it doesn't say what he believes. It just says he believed. Okay. Anything else about his his belief? Let me put it this way: the disciples have expressed belief in Jesus. Like all of the ones who remain, have have affirmed that they believe in Jesus. They they believe in who he says he is. That's what they have said. They have professed that. So what do you think is different and what's, what's to be noted about this disciple's belief now versus what the disciples believed about Jesus before the, the death? It probably just clicked in his head. Mm -hmm. He finally goes, Jesus has been telling them over and over and over mm -hmm. again, this is what's going to happen. Right. And so he, when he finally sees that the body isn't here, it finally clicks for him. Yeah. He gets it. Like, this is what he was telling us was going to happen. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Back on that. Good, yeah. Anything else about like what goes into that? Like what, what exactly is he believing in? Um, besides the, the the actual, okay, he believes that Jesus was raised. <coughs> anything else about it? If not, that's fine. I'm just I'm curious if there's any anything else that goes into believing that. What does it mean to believe that? Sometimes when you see something, seeing is believing. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, so it's kind of seeing that evidence, yeah. 
Because I think what's interesting is, so, so the, the different accounts of the resurrection are, are all slightly different. They're very slightly. Um, we read from Luke's account of the, of the resurrection this past Sunday. And what you'll remember is that it was a group of women that go, and before they depart, there are some angels that they interact with. We're going to get to the angels in a minute. But um, and in Luke's account, before the women ever go back to the disciples, they're, they're told by the, the angels what took place. And so they go with that evidence. And what we're hearing here is that it's just Mary Magdalene. And her belief, her initial uh, thought is, is that, oh, there's grave robbers. And that's what she reports. And so then these two disciples go and they see for themselves. And so they, they see... I don't think what we're being told here by John is that he believed that Jesus' body had been taken, right? That's not what we're being told. We're being told that he believed that, you know, what we've been being told, right? Like what Jesus has been talking about. He is the resurrection and the life, right? So um, I think that's important. That's an important, that's an important slight difference in the way that John tells it um, than, than how um, Luke or Matthew or Mark tells it. And I think also something kind of goes along with that is there's also a certain level of revelation uh, that goes yeah. along with actually seeing what right. you've been told. Because it's one right. thing to hear it over and over and over again. But when you actually see it happen, yeah. that moment where it clicks into place, you, you finally start to realize exactly what you're being told. Yeah. And the importance right. of Right. I think what's interesting is it is seeing for, her, for himself that the tomb is empty, but he's actually not seen Jesus yet. So the seeing is believing, sort of that yes, he sees the tomb, and he see, he notices that the thing that the cloths have been like neatly arranged, and that the cloths have been left behind, and so the belief is there, but he actually isn't seeing Jesus yet. So, I so I think I've talked about this a little bit last year. Um, I think I preached on this text whenever we on Easter Sunday, and I was looking back at that sermon, and and what what I talked about a little bit is that. I have a question in there, like, why do we not know, why are we not given the name of this disciple? Um, and there's a lot of speculation on that. The main speculation, what we're told later, is that this unnamed disciple kind of serves as the source of this gospel. So a lot of people think that the unnamed disciple is John, and so the unnamed disciple is the one who is the source for this um, for this uh, this gospel account, and so that's why it's called John, the Gospel according to John, is because we that's traditionally how we've understood it. Now we don't have that explicitly. That's just what we that's what we have taken from what's been written to us, and so that's part of it. Um, and so we might say, well, it's John. That's that's why. But it still doesn't quite make sense in that even if it even if we know if we can say for sure we believe it's John, it doesn't really make sense for the author to not say John. Right, and so what I what I read last year as I was studying for the the resurrection um, sermon um, for Easter last year was that part of what people have believed is what we're told is that this this gospel account is written so that we might believe. We'll read that part next week. Actually, it'll be a part of our our text that is specifically written so that the reader will believe. Um, and so what people have said is that the reason they leave that disciple unnamed. Is so that um, anytime you, anytime there's an unnamed character in a story, it makes it slightly easier—not a lot easier—but it makes it slightly easier for us, as the readers, to identify with that disciple. And so we're being told what this disciple is seeing. 
We're being told that this disciple believes, and then we're being told later on this was written so that the one who reads this will believe. Later, we'll, next week, we'll hear Jesus tell Thomas that, you know, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And all of the people who are reading this gospel text are people who don't see, right? And so um, part of the theory is, is that we need to put ourselves in this unnamed disciple's shoes and picture what he's picturing. That's kind of why I want to do that, that like imagining what they're seeing, and imagining what they're feeling and thinking. And, and that might help us just a little bit um, see, vision what's going on and what's taking place and put ourselves in those shoes. Um, and so John, the, the, the author is saying for us, he, he saw and believed. We saw and we believed. We read and we believed. And so that's just an interesting thought to think about. And, and, and it happens a few times in John's gospel where we hear about this unnamed disciple um, even even earlier at the crucifixion, it's this unnamed disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved, who Jesus says, this is your mother and this is your son. And, and so this idea of, of being kind of adopted into the family of Jesus. And we're going to see that in a little bit um, after, after we get through this next part as well. All right. So I went on that <coughs> for a little bit. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. Um, all right. Going back to verse 1. And back to the day. What day of the week is this taking place? Six. So this one, this event is taking place on the first day. So the, the death takes place on the sixth day. The resurrection takes place on the first day. So sixth, seventh, or the, um, the fifth, so it, it kind of goes from fifth, sixth, and then into the seventh is when the resurrection takes place. And so this is the first day of the week. So, sorry, I'm getting all mixed up. Um, the death happens, and then there's the day in between, and then it's the first day of the week, right? And so we're told that in verse 1, um, on the first day of the week. All right, let's go back to that, that John's emphasis on creation and Jesus as the cosmic Christ. What's significant about Jesus being resurrected on day one? Yeah, so it's the first day of creation, right? It's the first day that creation begins, right? So in Paul's language, this day of resurrection is the first day of new creation. That's Paul's language, right? And, and also John the Revelator's language of new creation. Um, this is the first day of new creation. That's what the resurrection signals. Like a new creation is starting this day that Jesus is raised. Um, that's just important. I think that's an important note to understanding what the resurrection is. What does it mean that Jesus was raised? Um, it's the beginning of the new creation. Let's, look, let's pick back up in verse 11. We're going to read verse 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb... As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and, other, and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was him. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabunai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he, the, the, that he had said these things to her. All right. What does Mary say to the angels in attempt, whenever they ask her why she is weeping? Um, what does she say to them in an attempt to put her, word, her, her, her grief into words? What does she say? <clears throat> So she still seems to be under this impression that that body has been taken, right? And and maybe at this point it's a little bit of shock. There's two angels sitting there. Um, so I, I think that question's so important. Um, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? And I want us to think about that again as as people trying to to put ourselves in the shoes and, and considering that question. Um, Obviously, Mary is mourning that her Lord's body has been taken from its resting place. Um, and so this is her answer to the question, why are you crying? This is that you have, the Lord's body has been taken. You know, there's a lot of people in our world who are mourning and crying. What answers um, might be given in our world to the question, why are you crying? Can you, let's just do, let's just imagine. I mean, maybe in your own life, but even in other people's lives, what? What's the answer to that question? Why are you weeping? Why are people weeping and mourning in our world? Lost. Lost. Frustrated. Yeah. Stuck in situations that don't want to get out. Mm. Don't have any hope for what's going to happen or yeah. what, what's all this going to end up. What else? I think one of the things I've been kind of led to think about um, <clears throat> And, and a lot of what y'all just named, you know, there could be any number of reasons that people are in those experiences, right? Um, I think a lot of times we um, look at a lot of situations and, and we think people are, are lost. They, um, they're confused. They have no hope. And a lot of times we um, might think, well, they've done that to themselves, right? They've put themselves in bad situations and we... You know, and and it's it can be, and and a lot of times that's true. I'm not I'm not saying that that's not, everything. but um, sin in our world is so um, holistic that we recognize that sin's not just like I broke God's law and now bad things are happening to me. Right, um, certain things go against what God has for us, and they cause us hurt and pain. But oftentimes, sin 
are things that God is trying to prohibit us from doing because it causes pain, not just to ourselves, but usually to others as well, right? So obviously, like some obvious ones, don't kill, don't steal. Those are sins because they are hurting others. They are causing pain and suffering to others. And so we often think about the, the perpetrator, the sinner, as suffering in a lot of these ways, being lost, um, being lost in their sin, experiencing suffering um, because they're, they're sinful. But think about the people on the other side of that. And I know all of us have been there at some point, right? We've experienced, we've been sinned against, right? We're not just sinners, we also get sinned against. All of us do. We live in a world of where that is captured by sin. So we are sinned against. And so we think about not only our sin or, or other sins, but we think about those that are hurt by our sin, by others' sins. So I think a lot of times people are weeping and mourning because um, they've been sinned against a lot, right? Um, They've been mistreated. They've been abused. They've been taken advantage of in a lot of different ways. And so mourning and and, uh, weeping often comes not only because I'm experiencing suffering because of my sin, but I'm experiencing you know, others are experiencing suffering as well because of my sin. Um, and, and so <clears throat> thinking about sin as that holistic sort of thing, not only the sinner suffers, but those that they sin against also are suffering and usually suffering even more. A lot of people who are doing so much sinning against others actually aren't suffering at all, right? They're living good lives, actually. You know, it's because their sin against others that they've been able to get to where they're at. You know, they've climbed the ladder, whatever it is, by taking advantage of others. Um, and so a lot of people who are sinning against aren't actually experiencing any suffering. It's usually those that are at the bottom and being crushed by them that are experiencing brokenness and, and weeping. And so I want us to think about that question that, that the angels pose. Why are you weeping? Why are you mourning? And so often it's because of sin against others. It's our own sin, but it's also could be sin of others against us. And let's think about that for a minute. And then I want you to think about what happens next. All right. Jesus explains to them or asks them, you know, says what's going on, why she is weeping. Mary says why she is weeping. And the angels don't respond after that. There's no response from the angels that we have according to John. Jesus or Mary simply turns around and they're presently is Jesus, right? So I want us to think about that question of why are you weeping and <coughs> how is Jesus's intimate presence an answer for not only Mary's situation here, but those other situations we might think about. How is Jesus's presence an answer to situations of mourning and crying? He is salvation. Yeah. Talk more about that. And that he uh, he brings comfort with his very presence. <coughs> yeah. And and when when it comes to the time where she recognizes, boy, we, we haven't got there yet, but mm. then there's a definite. In that, in her situation, there was this presence, yeah. the presence of somebody else there. She's by herself, yeah. and this has happened. She just, 
she was glad to have somebody to ask, some, some maybe get some answers. Yeah. And, and that, well, <coughs> that can translate into now. Yeah. Somebody to talk to that can give you the answers. Well, he is the answer. So uh, even if the person doesn't recognize him for who he is, it's it's still the same presence yeah. that Mary, yeah, that Mary experienced right in the garden. Yeah, that's great, and and that emphasis on presence and and intimate knowledge, and I, I think I kind of want to go back to our this conversation about like that the relation, the way our relationships change over time. I think this is why it's so important for us to understand our faith. Um, the way I've been thinking about it is as Christians, our religion. Um, some some people might call it a uh, incarnational religion. Okay, our Christianity is an incarnational religion. Now, incarnation we think about as Jesus comes to Earth. He is the incarnation of Christ. So that word broken down is carne is our, our flesh, right? So our, our religion. Is, a, is solely about, it's based on God becoming flesh, right? And living faithfully and dying and being raised in bodily form, being raised bodily back to life. Our faith as, as Christians is incarnational. That means present. That means physically um, present. This is why I, uh, one of the worst things about the pandemic in my mind is that it's pushed a lot of people into like online life more than, than in-person life. And so a lot of people want to get a lot of their worship and, and, and interaction with Christian faith online by just staying home and watching. And I think, you, I'm not saying that's completely not valuable. It's important. It can be helpful for people who are shut in and that's good. Um, but um, there's a huge difference in worshiping online versus worshiping in person. We are gathered together. You can't take communion online. Can't do it. You have to be in person. You have to be together to do that. Our religion is based on that, that we are incarnational. Not just our worship and gathering together. What does that mean for our mission? What does that mean for existence in the world, living as Christians in the world? It means that we have to be present where there is suffering. Jesus needed to be there in order to bring comfort to Mary who was mourning and weeping. We as Christians have to be present bodily, physically present with people in order for them to experience the comfort and knowledge that they are loved. Um, and so we become empowered, and we'll get into this next week, we become the spirit-empowered body and blood of Jesus in the world, not us ourselves, not by anything that we do, but through the Spirit's empowering, we become the presence that Mary is experiencing here. So important. And, and I think that that is so much about why resurrection is so important. Why is it so important that Jesus was raised? You know, why was it so important for his body to be raised up? And it's because he's incarnational. He had to be present. He had to be bodily present. And then he sends the disciples. He sends us in the same way that he was sent. That's what we're told. We'll get into that next week. Some. I want to watch a little video that, that gets into this question a little bit. Um, I, so much of our lessons I've depended on, especially since we've been in John's gospel, is I've been dependent on this, um, this scholar named N.T. Wright. He's a New Testament scholar. And, and this is a video by him 
where he talks. He's about five minutes long. Um, we're going to watch him talk about why does resurrection matter. We think about that each year and, and, and why it's so important. Um, why does resurrection matter? <coughs> so what are the implications of the belief that Jesus really was bodily raised from the dead? They start right away on Easter morning as the disciples scramble around trying to figure out what on earth has happened and what precisely it means. Because we have to remember it wasn't in their game plan. They weren't going around after his crucifixion saying, well, that's very unpleasant, but in a couple of days or so he'll be back again. They were rather completely confounded by discovering the empty tomb and then by meeting the risen Jesus himself. This was a whole new world opening up in front of them and they weren't ready for it. So the implication right from the start is that God's new creation has begun. Somehow God seems to have dealt with the fact of death itself in the person of Jesus. And then as they reflect on that over the weeks and months that follow, there are two things which are coming at them from a variety of angles. One is that the ancient scriptures, which many of them had known and loved since boyhood, the ancient scriptures had been fulfilled, but in a completely unexpected way. They started to read familiar texts with new eyes, so that when, for instance, God promises to David, I will raise up your seed after you who will sit on your throne, they said, oh my, it says God will raise up your seed, he has resurrected Jesus, this is the fulfillment of the promise to David which was also a promise about the building of a new temple, the new thing that God was going to do, the new way he was going to be present with his people. So we have a new creation, we have a new fulfillment of scripture. And then the second thing that happened very soon, I think, was that they realized that this was the fulfillment of the promise about the Exodus, that God had said through many prophets and in the Psalms that what he did for his people when he brought them out of Egypt he was going to do in a whole new way and was going to do it in a way which would last forever. And they came to realize that this rescue from slavery had actually happened in Jesus and that those who belonged to Jesus, those who were somehow enfolded within his life, that they were the new Exodus people, the people who had been released from slavery. And it didn't take long for them, and then this particularly comes through in the writings of Paul, to say that the ultimate slavery is sin and death. The death from which God had raised Jesus, and the sin which in Hebrew scriptures all the way through is the ultimate background cause of death. Because when people worship that which is not God, and when people behave in ways in which their humanity, their image-bearingness, is diminished or distorted or destroyed, then we see that sin and death just go hand in hand. And so Paul says, if the Messiah hasn't been raised, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. In other words, no resurrection means that sin has not actually been dealt with. And then of course he comes back and says, but actually the Messiah has been raised from the dead. And as a result, he is now Lord of all. And he now is ruling at the right hand of the Father. Because that's the next implication which arises out of this idea of new creation, new fulfillment of scripture, new exodus, and dealing with sin. 
The next implication is that if Jesus has been raised from the dead, he is Israel's Messiah, as he'd always hinted and as they'd begun to expect. But Israel's Messiah in scriptures is the Lord of the world. When we read Psalms like Psalm 2 or Psalm 72 or Psalm 89, we find that when the Messiah comes, when David's son arrives, he will be king over all the world, not just over Israel. And so we find, not surprisingly, that the resurrection of Jesus means what we would call a new political implication, not a new revolutionary party like all the other revolutionary parties we might have seen, but as Paul says at the <coughs> climax of the argument of his greatest letter, the letter to the Romans, the Messiah is the one who rises to rule the nations. He is quoting from Isaiah 11 at that point, one of the great messianic passages. And so we can see how this works, because death is the ultimate weapon of the tyrant. Tyrants rule by bullying, by fear, by cajoling people. If you don't do what we say, we're going to make it really bad for you. But the resurrection says that the living God has a weapon which goes beyond death. And ultimately the tyrant's power is removed and his kingdom is gone. And so Jesus' resurrection means that through what has happened, through what God has done in his death and then in his glorious rising, a new world has begun and Jesus' people, all those who belong to him, who share his risen life in the power of the Spirit, they constitute a new people who are to bear witness both by what they are, by what they do, by what they say, to the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord of the world. So just to kind of recap what he was saying there towards the end um, that I really appreciate. He says that um, what the resurrection reveals about Jesus is that the new exodus, right? So the exodus from, from the Old Testament is this, this great story of the people of God being um, enslaved by this mighty kingdom, this mighty empire. God rescues them out of Exodus. That's what the Passover is about, right? And all this is taking place in Passover. And so, uh, so the great Exodus that Jesus brings goes beyond just where are we at politically, where are we at nationwide, where are we at in the world. And so um, a lot of Jesus' disciples are hoping that Jesus will look a lot like Moses, or Joshua, right? And remember, Jesus is Joshua. That's the same name. It's just a different alliteration of that name, Joshua. Jesus is the new Joshua, bringing the people out of the wilderness into the promised land. And so, so Jesus, so the people, so the disciples are kind of hoping that Jesus will look a lot like Joshua or Moses in rescuing them from the current mighty empire, right? Which is Rome, not not Egypt now, but Rome. And so their hope and expectation is that as the Messiah would be that. Jesus, all throughout his life and ministry, is saying, I'm here for way more than that. I'm here to rescue us from, because guess what? If Jesus had come as Moses and rescued them from, from Rome, Jesus would have moved on just like every other Moses or, or Messiah figure had. And guess what? Just one more mighty empire would have come up after Rome. Per, you know, whatever empire comes after Rome would have been the dominant figure then. Then they would need another Messiah. 
and then another empire comes, and then they need another Messiah. And it's this cycle of always being, there's always a mighty empire to come conquer the small people. And so what Jesus does, what God's plan was from the beginning, was that the Messiah was not just going to rescue them from some other mighty empire like Rome, but instead we were going to, to take the power of a Rome or an Egypt or a Babylon completely away by saying, now we don't have to be scared of you because we're not scared of death. Because death has been defeated. Death is the last enemy to be defeated, Paul tells us. And when we're not scared of death, when we're not scared of, of, of the, the, the sinning against, because we have the comforter of the Messiah standing there as we weep during the oppression, um, we can be confident and know that we don't have to be scared of death. And so one, so it's not passive. It's not just let's receive our suffering, right? This goes back to Luke and what we've been talking about on Sunday. It's not just I'm just going to receive my suffering because I'll make it to heaven one day. But it's to stand up and be confident that we can face the tyrant, the empire, the mighty oppressors in our world and say, you have no power. Because even if you kill me, God is stronger than death. Resurrection is stronger than death. So why is it important for Jesus to have been raised up to show and defeat death and to show us that we do not have to fear death and we don't have to fear those who put people to death? And as a matter of fact, we are sent in the same way that Jesus was sent, and as we'll learn next week, and that is to not just passively stand by as there's, uh, there's these mighty empires of oppressors and not just, empire, not just politically, but bullies out in our world, just individuals who are who are mistreating others, that we don't have to, to passively stand by and let them do that and wait for a Messiah to come, that we are empowered in the Spirit to stand up to people who are mistreating others, mistreating us, and say, I refuse to participate in what you're doing, but you can't defeat me because I believe in resurrection and I have my hope in resurrection. Um, and that is much, much more powerful than simply being rescued from a mighty empire. I think, you get what I'm saying? Is that Are you following what... Following what N.T. Wright has kind of laid down and what I'm trying to reiterate there. It's good news. That's good news, to say the least, right? That we do not have to fear that. Any, any thoughts, finally? We've just got a couple minutes. <clears throat> I've got some reflection questions there. You might think about it in this way. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean to you? And then another reflection question for us. Um, have you ever considered the freedom that comes from not fearing death? Think about the freedom that comes when we do not have to be scared of death. How does this freedom empower us to live in a world that is still under the power of sin and death? And we'll go thinking about those questions and come back next week and, and continue our, our thought and thinking about what resurrection means for us. Um, any thoughts before I pray? All right, let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for, um, for, for being a God who comes and, and is present with us, who... Who, who incarnationally um, walks in this earth and, and demonstrates and shows what it means to be God's presence in the world. 
standing up against those who um, those sin the sinful ways and patterns of our our world and the systems that that um, that attempt to to oppress and um, and and intimidate and manipulate into their own wills. Lord, we know that we do not have to fear that. We do not have to fear those we, we, those ways, Lord, because you have defeated those ways. You have defeated death and destruction. And though it's not fully realized yet, we know that your new creation is at work in the world and that you are empowering us and showing us and breathing into us your spirit that we might go into the world and live in confidence that we do not have to fear death that we don't have to participate in the ways of death, and that when death knocks on our door, that we can be confident that you wait for us on the other side, as you did on the other side of that grave. We thank you, Lord, for your love and mercy. We ask that you would go with us, help us to be your people, empower us, O God, in Jesus' name, amen.